Well, good morning. My name is Jason, one of the pastors here at Community Church, and really glad that each and every one of you is here today. Wherever you are in your journey, I'm uh, thrilled that you're here. As Matt's already said, and we've, we've heard some scriptures read, we're talking about hope this morning. We're talking about hope. And I want you to think for a moment about hope. We're in this series that we've called Waiting for a Story. And we're waiting for a story that gives us hope. But when you think about hope this morning, what is it that uh, gives you hope? We have big stories of hope. We have little stories of hope that we're waiting on. Maybe it's simple things like I see some blue and white in the crowd this morning. Maybe we're hoping that the Colts will return to their glory days and make it to the playoffs. Some of you, I, I look out, I know we've got some Purdue basketball fans. You're hoping that this will be the year. IU basketball fans, you're hoping that maybe the glory days will come back. I don't know, but what are the stories that you are hoping in, whether it's simply to get you through the day or to get you through the diagnosis. What are your stories of hope? Is it your kids? Is it your achievements? Is it your job? What, what are those stories that give you hope? And then the big question I would have for you this morning is simply this. Are you waiting on the right story? Are you waiting on the right story? Well, let's pray as we enter into God's word this morning. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy. What a joy it is to come together and worship and sing about you, Jesus, that you give us ultimate meaning and purpose and all those things that we will sing and say with our lips. But Lord, I would ask you this morning to penetrate our hearts, help us to see what is the true source of our hope. And Lord, as we come into this place this morning with different cares, different concerns, different joys, different sorrows, May we be united by the power of your word. I pray, Lord, that my words are clear, that they're helpful, that they're true, that they give you glory and honor. I ask that you burn off whatever doesn't do that. Holy Spirit, we invite you to be our teacher this morning. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, as we think about hope and we think about the big story of hope, I want to take us back to the hope of the people of Israel. The Oropesa family already read, us from the book, read to us from the book of Isaiah. I want to return briefly to those passages and set the stage for this hope that we have. Isaiah 40 verse 1, comfort, comfort my people. 
says, your God speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Here we have a promise of hope, a promise of rescue, a promise that our sins will be dealt with, a promise of a great rescuer that was to come in the grand history of God's interaction with his people. We have this promise of a story that is to come. And when I use the word story, please hear me clearly. I don't mean like a made-up story. I don't mean like a fish story. I don't mean half-truths. I mean history, real stuff. The narrative of God working with his people through human history. So there's this grand promise, and there's also the presence of life with God. Isaiah 40, verse 28, do you not know, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. It's one of those verses that you put on the refrigerator. You tack on the mirror. You you hide it away in your heart. That is a promise of presence with God, a promise of strength, a promise of renewal that is through the actual presence of a life with God. And the promise and the presence go hand in hand because we have a creator who is above it all. But I want to take take you back for a moment, though, to your story for a moment. Think back to your story, the right stories that you have. Sometimes when we think about our own lives and our own stories, sometimes we have patterns, sometimes we have stories that change. I can't help but be reminded when I was a kid, when I'm 17 years old, and my hope, while I may have professed it to be in Jesus, my real hope was probably in getting a Division I football scholarship. I quickly had a reality check. I went to the University of Michigan. Go blue, we've got some Michigan fans, some Michigan haters out there too probably. But I went to the University of Michigan football camp. That was a reality check for me. When you see all the talent that was there, let me just say I was not in the upper half. I was probably in the bottom quartile. Not a lot of demand for 5'9", linebackers who run a 5-flat 40. I was quickly undeceived in the reality of my hope. We all have hopes and dreams. We all have things that we are placing our confidence in. But I, again, I ask you, do you have the right story of hope? Are you waiting for the right story? Well, I want to take you now, I want to 
fast forward about 700 years or so, and I'm going to take you to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to look at, briefly through the eyes of the shepherds, their own story of hope that they were waiting on, and then what we might learn from it. Luke 2, verse 8, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. So when we consider this big story, when we consider the good news, we consider what is being brought to the humble shepherds, a couple questions to ask ourselves. First of all, what is this good news? What is the good news? What is this word gospel? Well, that there would be a Savior, the Messiah, the the anointed one, the one who would fulfill Isaiah's prophecy of rescue, that people would be rescued from their sins, that this child would grow up, he would teach us about the kingdom, he would die. And then he would rise. And that actually happened. And he would ultimately defeat the power of sin and death and rescue all who believe in him. That's the big story. That's that's what we're waiting for. But why would God choose to announce this to the shepherds? I mean, do you ever just stop and pause a moment? And look at the manger scene and think about how it all fits together and how it makes sense. It's pretty staggering to think about God announcing the good news to the shepherds. The humble shepherds, lowest rung on the social ladder. What does that say about our God? Well, it says a couple things. That it's not about our status. It's not about wealth. It's not about power. It's not about influence. But that he would share the good news to these humble shepherds. That that message of grace would be available to all who would believe in him. That in and of itself is a phenomenal truth to just ponder for a moment. That the God of the universe would appear and make this presence of the Savior known to the shepherds. They would see a window into God's plan. Verse 13. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Imagine being there, of seeing that, of really seeing that. And then how do they respond? 
Verse 15, when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. The natural response is to to go and see. What is this all about? Here at Community Church, we talk a lot about seeing the hope of Jesus, being a community who sees the hope of Jesus, and then sharing that hope. But there's an initial step that says we need to see it. We need to see the hope of Jesus. It's a pattern for us. And I want you to think about that hope in a couple ways. That first of all, it is a hope that is based on an objective reality. It's based on the foundation that Jesus actually rose. That the story is true. That it's real history. I don't think we can overestimate the importance of that fundamental truth. We can debate a lot of things. We can agree to disagree about a lot of things. But the historical fact of the resurrection is not one of those things. Our whole belief, our whole faith is built on the truth, capital T, of that foundation. So there's this truth. There's also the experience that is personal of a life with God of a life with God that is true for me. So this is both true and it's true for me, true for you, true for us. There's both an objective reality, a history, and a personal experience. What an amazing promise we have. Now, How do we actually live in this hope? What does that actually look like for us? How can we actually live in the day-to-day reality of this, regardless of circumstances? If you've had a glorious week and you're on top of the world, or you've had a week that you feel like has been 10 years, And there's still a lot of week left. Wherever you may be, do you have a reality of this hope? Well, I want to take us now, I want to fast forward another 60 years or so. And I want to read from a passage that uh, Peter will write to the scattered church. Okay, If if you're newer to the Bible, let's talk about Peter for just a minute. Who was Peter, all right? Peter was in the inner circle as one of Jesus' disciples. A fisherman, a little bit of a temper at times, a little erratic in his behavior at times. In many ways, Peter had the wrong story about Jesus. He didn't quite grasp what the kingdom would be about. He thought 
Jesus' coming would be perhaps ushering in a military revolution. So when the Roman guards came to take Jesus, Peter takes out the sword, slices off the ear of the guard. He would eventually deny Jesus. And then Jesus would gently restore him. Peter would preach the first big sermon after the resurrection and on him the church would be built. What a fascinating individual. Peter will write this letter to the it's called the exiles. All right, those who, the church had been scattered. There'd been persecution. Most likely it's it's under Nero who was famous for persecuting Christians and he would write this letter of encouragement and hope to the church. Friends, here's what I love about the Bible. It's written in the middle of the mess. It is written to us. It's for us. It's not directly to us, but we have our own messes. We can apply it. And it's not just some, you know, golden document that fell from the sky. It had a real context, real people, and we can make real application from it. So I want you to hear these words. 1 Peter 3, or 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter talks about a living hope. A living hope. Let's let's talk about what that is. In his mercy... He has given us a new birth, one that is available to all, not through their status, not through achievement, but through simple faith, simple trust. What is the message? Jesus has risen from the dead. He has defeated the power of sin and death, and he promises us an inheritance And hear these words, that will never perish, spoil, or fade. Think about all the other things we hope in. Everything else will eventually die, disintegrate, or disappear. But the living hope, the living hope of the gospel is the right story. Let me say that again. The living hope of the gospel is the right story. It is the right story. And it's the right story even when it looks like it's the wrong story. Even when circumstances are tough, 
even when you're discouraged, even when you're down, it is the right story. Peter continues, verse 6, in all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I frequently mention this concept, but I want to make sure that you understand it. We live in the already and the not yet. We live in the in-between. Jesus has already died. Jesus has already risen. Jesus has already paid the penalty for our sin. But yet we live in the not yet that Peter is talking about here. We still suffer, we still have trials, our bodies still break down, we still have all the challenges and problems of this earth. The Bible is crystal clear on this because there's an answer to suffering, there's an answer to pain. We live in the in-between. Whatever your belief system is, We all have to have an answer. We all have to have a way to account for pain, suffering, injustice, all those things. The way the Bible will describe it is just that. We live in the in-between of the already and the not yet. We can look back and see what God has done. We can look forward to his return, and we can experience his presence right now that is available to every one of us. Jesus is sometimes called Emmanuel, God with us. And we have the Holy Spirit to remind us who we are, children of God, and who we are to each other brothers and sisters in Christ. I want you to consider that for just a moment. Sometimes you can look around in any church gathering and say, only because of Jesus are we all in the same room. (laughs) We may not be united by interests. We may not be united by, I mean, I even had a Patriots fan over to my house last night. I led him through the door. We even let him be an elder for four years. But what ultimately unites us and brings us together is Jesus. What an amazing thing. Now, when we think about this story of hope that we are waiting on, it's really the only way the only way that we can truly face the current reality 
of pain, suffering, disappointment. Because we have a hope that goes beyond the grave. Paul said this, 1 Corinthians 15, 19, in that great chapter on the resurrection, he said, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. There's a hope that goes beyond the grave. Now, if this is true, how are we to respond? Jump down a few verses in 1 Peter 1, verse 13. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. So the question this morning, the the practical takeaway, how is it that you set your hope on the right story? What does that actually look like? I want to get practical with you for a moment and invite you to think about a process that I believe is helpful that really is running through this series. The first one is this. Identify your idols. Identify your idols. If we are to set our hope on grace, now this is, he's talking about the grace that is to come, the grace of Jesus returning. We have the grace of the right now. What is grace? Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is God providing from the outside what we cannot do in and of ourselves. What's an idol? Any substitute for God. Anything that we put in that place that gives us ultimate meaning and purpose. Anything that you place above God to worship. It's really the wrong story of hope. Let me give you just a, maybe a little bit of a silly example of this, but... um, never forget this, my, my middle guy just graduated from college, and he's got his first, like, big boy job, and he's got the HR meeting, you know, they talk about all the benefits and all that, and he comes back, and he's flabbergasted by the cost of health insurance. Anybody been there? And he says this, he said, Dad, you know what? I don't need this health insurance. He didn't know that he could still be on our plan. That's a whole other story. Now he's off. Now he's on his own. But he said this. You know what, Dad? He said, I like to bet on myself. I like to bet on myself. No, I mean, he was half serious, but now think about that for a moment. I like to bet on myself. In other words, my hope is in my own health, which I have complete control over. I'm like, hey, buddy, we'll, we'll see how that works out for you. But think about it. That's a small example, but that's part of what an idol is. It's to put something else, namely myself, as the object of my hope. I am betting on myself. That's really at the core of any idol that we may have. Now, I want to give you maybe a new way to think about that this morning. Some of us, you've been in church forever. 
And you hear these words like grace and idol and, and all that, and you know, the familiar tunes play. Some of you may be brand new to this and you're trying to figure it out, and I'm so thankful you're here. Let me give you a way to think about it that maybe you haven't heard of before. Came across a uh, professor at Harvard Business School, and he teaches a course on happiness and leadership. How do you put those two together? (laughs) Those of you who've been in leadership, you know the challenge of that. But happiness and leadership. So he's got all these high flyer, Harvard, Harvard. I mean, think about kind of the the record you got to have to get into Harvard Business School. Imagine you got to have a pretty good resume to get into Harvard Business School. And a few dollars to boot, I would imagine. But he makes this distinction. And I think he got it from his dad, who was actually a Wheaton College professor back in the day. But he said there are two kinds of problems in the world. There are complicated problems, and there are complex problems. Complicated, complex. Some of you are like, good night, he's going to split hairs on a definition. But I think it's important. This is a complicated problem. A complicated problem problem is one if enough if you've got enough time enough money enough computation enough engineering you can solve the problem a jet engine is a complicated problem a toaster is a complicated problem put in a new bathroom sink and lo and behold when i put the new one in The plumbing didn't match up. That was a complicated problem for me. Many YouTube videos, many trips to Menards, but eventually, at least for the time being, I solved the complicated problem. Now, everybody with me on a complicated problem? But he says there are also complex problems. Complex problems are the ones that there are so many different permutations you cannot figure it out because they have to do with people. People are not a complicated problem. They're a complex problem. Relationships are complex. Even are the Colts going to win today or not is complex. That's why you don't bet on sports, because you can't figure it out, and it's wrong, depending on, that's a whole other story. We won't, we won't get into secondary issues here, okay? But if you think you're going to solve a complex problem with a complicated solution, you are going to lose every time. Are you with me on that? We talk about peace hope, joy, love, these are not complicated problems. These are complex problems. Now, if you got a complex problem, what kind of solution do you need? A complicated solution will not take care of the problem. We need something beyond us. That's why we need Jesus. That's why we need the gospel. Because there's a solution, and that's grace, that is 
above and beyond us. Now, when we talk about idols, what are idols? In some ways, idols are complicated solutions to a complex problem. Go back to the theologian uh, Thomas Aquinas. He says there's, a big, there's, there's four big idols. There's wealth, there's power, there's pleasure, and there's fame. Anybody struggle with those four? Everybody's got at least one that you struggle with. Okay? The first thing we need to do is identify that. What is, what is the idol? What is the thing that you're like, I'm, I'm going to replace, I'm going to put in place, I'm going to give my life ultimate meaning, ultimate hope is in that. If I make enough money, oh my goodness, I will have hope. If enough people like me, if I can please enough people, fame's not just, you know, your video's going viral. I mean, it can be even in a little context of do people really like me? Do I please enough people? Do I have enough, do I have enough power? Do I have enough control? Do I have enough just feel-goods to get through the day? What is your idol? Do you have a wrong story? We all have a wrong story at some level because we've made it ultimate. Those four things in and of themselves are not evil. It's when we may take them to excess in a replacement for God that they become idols. So the question today is, can you identify your idol? What's the wrong story that you need to take a look at? And then the second thing I would ask you to do is to investigate your patterns. All right? Peter says, be alert and be sober-minded. This is not a hyper-emotional thing. Think clearly about this. What, what are your patterns? Okay, I was thinking back in the day of, you know, my 17-year-old self, a little bit of an achievement, a little bit of a fame idol, so glad I got rid of that when I was 18. <laughs> Lo and behold, my son would come along and have a similar dream <laughs> and a similar outcome. But what is your idol? And then investigate that. Think about what are the patterns and then play that forward. Play that forward. Health is important to me. It's a complicated issue at one level, diet, exercise, all that stuff. But ultimately, it's complex. <laughs> you can't solve it. There's one who can, though. And that's the good news of the gospel. So investigate that, and then ultimately, invite Jesus to write your story. Invite Jesus to write your story. Set those idols aside and simply invite Jesus to write your story. What a truth. What hope. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. He's bigger than it all. Bigger than any complicated issue we deal with. He alone has the answer to the complexities of our lives. Amen? Would you trust him today? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Oh, do we thank you for the hope 
that you give to us. A hope that's rooted not in something that's pretend or some big idea that didn't break through human history, but you've given us a Savior. You've given us a big promise. And more than that, you've given us your presence right now. Lord, I would ask that your spirit would move in us now. If there's any in here for the f- who, who haven't yet taken a step of faith and trust, would you help them to see today? To simply say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, and take that step today. Lord, as we face so many different challenges, so many problems that on the surface look complicated, help us to see the reality of our idols. Help us to see our own insufficiency. And may we truly invite you to write our story. A story that is eternal with you. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. We're blessed as followers of Jesus to remember, to remember the right story of hope. When we come to the communion table, we are remembering the living hope that we have. Here at Community Church, our our communion table is open to all who've put their faith and trust in Christ. You've taken that simple step of faith. Doesn't mean you got it all figured out, but you've taken that step. And I want to invite you to take a moment and go ahead and close your eyes and, and, and reflect. Think about your own idols. Think about the substitutes for God that we've all tried to put in place. Ask the Holy Spirit, show me reality. Show me what I'm really trusting in. Peel away the layers of self-sufficiency, of putting your hope in something else other than Jesus. And when we come to the table, we remember that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he gathered his disciples in the upper room, and after giving thanks, he broke the bread and gave it to him. He said, this is my body given for you. What grace. Take, eat, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and said, this cup represents a new covenant, a new promise. This blood represents forgiveness of sins. This says we remember and receive the bread. We receive the cup in gratitude. 
And we're told through God's word that when we receive the bread and the cup, we, we proclaim the Lord's death. We, and we look forward to his return. So even now as we sit in between the already and the not yet, we receive with gratitude and we say thank you, Jesus. So we invite you, Holy Spirit, now. Just continue to work in us, prepare our hearts now as we come to the table. It's in Jesus' name that we